it's the speed of your iterations which will determine if you're going to be successful or not. If it takes you nine months to bring out your initial product compared to another team which will do it in three and have a second version in three and third version in three, like that speed of iterating will define whether you're going to win or not, in my mind. That's Tavert Hinrichus, the co-founder and former chairman of WISE, the unicorn fintech formerly known as TransferWise. He's now the co-founder of Plural, an investment platform for early stage capital built by founders and real operators just like Tavert. Oh, and he was also the first ever employee at Skype. Basically, he's one of the top startup dogs in Europe. So we had to get him on to learn what the difference is between great companies and the rest, between great execution and the rest. It's always amazing to me hearing about the early days of companies which become absolutely massive, like WISE or Skype. The days when they're signing up tens of users rather than tens of thousands, and they're wondering if they're barking up the wrong tree. All startups begin with zero real users, and it's fascinating how the best navigate their way from there to the top. Tavert is part of the group of Estonian entrepreneurs who've had a GDP-level impact on the country, and he thinks being born behind the Iron Curtain actually helped. I was born in the Soviet Union, so right now Estonia, but when I was born in 81, it was part of the Soviet Union, it was pretty grim times in the beginning. So I was about 10 years old when Estonia regained independence, and the beginning of an independent country was quite hairy. I mean, literally... You know, you would go to a shop and, uh, you know, you have empty shelves and, you know, also like in the Soviet Union, because everything was kind of scarce. So if your washing machine broke, you had to fix it yourself. And actually, I think that made people quite creative and entrepreneurial. Like private enterprise was not allowed in the Soviet Union, but I think people had a lot of these kind of... uh, creative habits and just being able to to get shit done and and fix things themselves and build things themselves. So I started working when I was in high school. I got a job when I was 17. So the last two years of high school I worked and a friend of mine was building websites and had a little uh, web development agency and I I joined them as a software developer. I was self-taught and uh, to me, that was so much more fun uh, doing something in addition to going to school. And then after high school, I went to uni, but in parallel kept on working. And then I started working with Niklas and Janos and the crews that built Skype. And, you know, at some point I kind of forgot to show up for classes in uni and and found myself as a, as a dropout. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because the almost mythical status of the legendary entrepreneur is the dropout. And I guess, was it a happy accident or were you also inspired by other people's journey, you know, knowing that it isn't the end of the world if you drop out of school sometimes? Probably my parents were more more concerned about me dropping out than I was back then. I got a letter from the bank saying that I had to start paying back my student loan. I was like, hmm, why did I get that letter? And I was like, okay, maybe I'm going to call the university. And I called them and then I realized that the, I had, I say, had kicked me out a couple couple months ago. Amazing. Fun, like, fun way to find out. I guess, you know, you'd already technically kicked yourself out by not turning up. But hey, um, okay, so what was it like, early days of Skype? We started building Skype in 2000, well, like working with that team in 2002. And, you know, we have to realize that the internet was a whole lot smaller back then. We were doing it in uh, 
in post-Soviet uh, Tallinn, Estonia. And, you know, it was uh, pretty hard to imagine that you can build something from Estonia, which will change the way the world communicates. So I think for me, it was, it was just a more, in the beginning, it was a more exciting job, you know, like, okay, working with two guys who had built Kazaa and, you know, they were clearly going to do more mischief. It was just more exciting than working for the local bank. You know, I'll, I'll be honest that I, I did not, uh, grasp the impact of what we can do. But, you know, very soon when, when we had launched it and first people were using it, you could start seeing that, whoa, this is actually quite significant. And I think the, the trick is that once you are part of a, of a journey like that, it's really hard to go and get a regular job afterwards. You know, once you build the program which changes the way the world communicates, it becomes really hard to go and, and get a regular job. So, you know, for me, it was a quite a natural next step to go on to my own entrepreneurial journey after that. But in some ways, I do think of, uh, you know, Skype being, uh, being my practical education, so to say. A lot of lessons about building a company and lessons about things not to do. And, you know, we again, if we think back to 2003, 4, 5, there was a lot less education outside about entrepreneurship. You know, today you can, you know, how to hire and fire people. There's like 3,000 blog posts and podcasts you can, you can read and listen. Back then there was nothing. You know, you kind of had to go and figure all these things out yourself. So back then, you didn't have the blog post, you had the practical experience. So talk to me about some of the things that you really took from your experience at Skype and brought with you to WISE. I think it's really kind of goes back to, you know, companies, the company is a collection of people and it's really kind of figuring out how to build teams and, and realizing that people are a lot more than what you read on a CV. You can look at someone who is like, oh, he's a, he's a big shot at a big company. And yet you realize that that person is going to be completely useless in a startup environment. You know, you have to, you have to figure out uh, the right people for the right job. You know, if you are an early stage startup, then probably hiring uh, a big company COO is not going to be of any help to you. And also the people you hire who are in the very beginning, they might not be that useful anymore two years later when you're a team of 120 people and say, keep on complaining about, you know, the good old days when we had craft beer in the office. Do you find that there were moments, you know, when you're an employee at Skype and obviously you can't help but think there's surely some ways that we could do these things better. The founders just aren't thinking about this. That seems really glaringly obvious to me because I'm an employee. Then at Wise, you're the founder and you're almost forgetting the same lessons. Absolutely. You know, the, the reality is that it's always one thing being an employee and, you know, there's someone you can sort of say you can blame for everything that happens. Yet when you, when you find yourself in the founder or CEO seat, it's like, oh, wait a minute. Now I have to make all the decisions and you realize that actually it's, it's a lot harder than it may look. You know, sometimes, you know, you're in the thick of it and yeah, there are things you just don't have time to do and, you know, everything will, will have some consequence and, you know, I think the key is figuring out that you just need team and people to help you do everything. And, and then it's a question of building a culture where people will, will take the same decisions, whether you're in the room or not. 
And what about leaving Skype? Because obviously when you joined, it was only just getting started, but leaving something that is achieving so much success at its peak, which is when you chose to leave, right? What's that like? I think it's really hard to say what is the peak of a company. In retrospect, it's maybe easier, but you know, I don't know. Even if we, let's pick an obvious one, let's pick Amazon. It's a bloody huge business. You know, is it at its peak now or was it at its peak when it had figured out how to sell books online and was scaling so rapidly? Maybe everything after that was just a repetition. Also, if we think of Skype, then it was super exciting to build the first product and, you know, continuously work on improving it, growing it. And then, you know, we went from voice calling to video calling. And that was probably in 2005. You know, when I left end of 2008, there was not that much more that had been built. You know, I'm oversimplifying it in a way, but, you know, I think in some ways the core of it was built. And yet, of course, you know, in the years, the years after I left, probably Skype grew to be another three, five or 10 X bigger than it was when I left. I think it's, it's a lot of question of, you know, when are you finding the challenges that are interesting to you at that point in life? I could have said that Skype and probably learned more about management and learned more about corporate politics and all of that. You know, yet I thought that if I don't leave now, I actually might get stuck here for too long. I think it's also, it's about the courage to figure out now it is time to go. And while I might not know what I'm going to do, I will never find out unless I try. So talk to me about starting wise. What was that like in the first couple of years? We had been using this way of kind of manual peer-to-peer transfers to save ourselves money and, you know, avoid being taken advantage of by the banks. And then, you know, it was just a question of, wait, you know, it works so well for us. Is there something we can do for others? Can we turn it into a business? I mean, you know, the beginning, you know, we built it. It's, it wasn't that complicated to build the first version of the product the more complicated thing was how do we get people to use it? You know, how do we get people to trust a, a website which essentially popped up on the internet? It was really hard for me because when I had left Skype, we were signing up about 200,000 new users every day. The first month of TransferWise, I think we had 95 new users. The next month, it dropped to 70 new users. The month after, it was 120. So we were growing. But yet, you know, you, you get the first people using it and then you call up the people to talk about the experience of using the product and what they liked, what they didn't like. And while it was still very primitive, but, you know, people telling you, hey, this is so much better than using my bank. And then like, wait a minute, you know, there's something here. And, you know, we need to kind of figure out what are the product pillars? How do we keep on improving it? How do we figure out how to build trust and do marketing? And then, you know, slowly it started growing and then we knew the rules of compound growth. And, you know, it was pretty soon after that, you know, it was really becoming a race when we were racing against ourselves in terms of how quickly can we build this. Towards the end of the first year, we, we were running. Like it took us some, maybe the first half of the year to figure out this is, this can work and we really have to run as fast as we can to build this into a global business. Mm 
If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. You mentioned earlier peer-to-peer payments, and we've got smart listeners, but that might also mean nothing to a lot of people. So like, what was the actual original concept for how WISE works? Like, What is the point of the business, and how has that actually changed? WISE or TransferWISE is a way to send money from one person to another person or business and send money overseas. So when sending money overseas, your bank uses a, a fictional exchange rate and ends up stealing between 3 and 5% from you. So by using WISE, we would charge you 10 times less and get some money across in a matter of moments now. So just cheaper, faster way to make international payments. That's a core product. And talk to me a little bit about then the funding journey. So did you start with seed funding? Did you start just on your own, own dime bootstrapping? Like, Give us an idea of the first few years, how it actually grew and got funded. The first year we were on our own, you know, to be honest, it doesn't take that much to build a simple product and, you know, a few people, you don't need uh, that much budget for it. You didn't need it back then. And I don't think you need it today. Uh, we went out to raise our seed round end of the first year. And that was hard while, you know, we had growing numbers and repeat users, but the numbers were tiny, you know, revenue was in hundreds of pounds. And I think we went out to raise, uh, I think it was pretty punchy. We wanted to raise a million pounds. It was when the pound was still worth a lot more than it is today. And, you know, we spoke to probably everybody in, everyone in Europe and it was too risky. So we ended up finding investors in New York who were willing to to write a check for the seed round. 
we have a lot more investors in Europe now. You know, I think there are still ways we can make the European ecosystem better, but you know, luckily it's quite different compared to what it was 10 years ago. Can you reflect on the challenges you have found personally on growing from a two-person team to leading hundreds and thousands of people? I had been at Skype when, you know, I spent days in a row interviewing people, hiring engineers, etc. So kind of like in, in some sense, I, I knew that if it works, how it's going to look and feel like. But in the end, it's, it is a journey, a typical journey of going from two guys which, who are doing things to growing teams and teams of teams and then figuring out how do you, how do you move from a contributor to a leader? And I think, you know, from in there, in my mind, there's probably a couple, couple things, you know, kind of overall goal setting, you know, creating a rhythm for the company, all of that. And then I think there's a lot to do with, with overall company, company culture. And I think, you know, we're, we were trying really hard to think about who are the right kind of people, what are the behaviors. And I think the hardest truth about company culture is that it's nothing to do with the words right on the walls, but it's all to do with the behaviors of what the founders and the early employees are, are using, you know, everybody looks up to the founders and kind of knowingly or not knowingly will, will emulate and copy what they're doing. What are some of the mistakes you think you might've made along the way? Have you ever had feedback or very clear mistakes that you've made from your team? I think a lot of it is very typical. Maybe some of it is uh, kind of cultural background and being a, being a male, like, you know, typical things about feedback, you know, how to not giving enough feedback, how to make sure you do it off, you do it quickly and often. But you know, I think, you know, the, the lessons to me, it's, it's really about kind of mostly about people and hiring and realizing that when you are, when you're growing a team fast, you will, you will end up making mistakes, but knowing that you really have to fix them fast. I think all of these things you can read in so many blog posts and, and whatnot, but I think you, you just need to go through and do it a few times yourself to build your own muscle memory. You need to train your own neural network to recognize these moments and to act. I think it's like, you know, unfortunately, you can't absorb it all by, by reading books. Yeah. And in terms of letting people go, have you had experiences at WISE? And what do they teach you in those moments? Like, what do they teach you about yourself? I think it partially to do with the business cycle, partially to do with the fact that, you know, we did get our growth engine running pretty well. You know, we didn't have to go through a, a team downsizing, you know, we did. You know, we had a moment where we did, where we had to make a shift from growth at all costs to a more sustainable growth model and, you know, really focus on fixing our unit economics. But, you know, now being an investor in, in many other companies, like especially in the times today, the, the downsizing discussions are, are very real everywhere. And, uh, you know, I think there's just a lot about the way a company does it. You know, while, while, you know, you have to focus on the people who stay, I think the people who stay, they read a lot about you from the way you treat the people who are, who are leaving. I just think it's kind of about being human about it and doing it with dignity, which is really important. And you just cannot, you can't forget it. 
How long did you actually spend building the company? And I think, you know, before we come to actually leaving your own company, let's talk about leading it towards IPO. Like what kind of different experience was that in terms of like a personal growth journey? I stepped away from the CEO job before the IPO. You know, it had been seven years of running a marathon at sprint speed. And, you know, I kind of... uh, thought, okay, it would be, I'd love to do it for another seven years, but you know, once you go public, you're stuck as a CEO for, for a while more. So would my wife and kids uh, still know me? Because it is, it is a hard job. Uh, so I kind of uh, made a choice that uh, I will step away from that uh, into a, a chairman position. And, and I was chairman until uh, through the IPO and, and to step down from that the beginning of this year or end, end of last year. I think so, it's a bigger question of, you know, when and how to leave your own company. It's a very, I think it's a very kind of hard one. I, I don't think there is any, any generalization, but it's just a question of figuring out like what are other things you want to do in life? And you know, I've, uh, I've really, really enjoyed the, the fact of going more plural and doing multiple things and, uh, and having maybe a bit more control over, over your life and be able to spend a bit more time with family and, and kids in addition to, to now helping the next generation of companies grow and just being able to work on multiple things. What was it actually like being a parent during a, a high growth period in your company? I think it's hard. And, you know, the way it tends to happen is that oftentimes founders have young children and young companies. You know, my wife is, uh, likes to joke, the transfer wise is the first kid. And, you know, my uh, son and daughter are the second and third one after, after the company. My, my daughter is nine now. She was born 2013. So kind of two years after starting the company. And, you know, what that meant for me is that after that, you know, my life was usually head home uh, from office at six, spend time with kids and then start working again from eight. There was no spontaneous, let's go for a drink or do anything like, you know, everything was scheduled weeks in advance, which is something you just need to get used to. It's entirely doable, but it just needs needs a little bit more being organized and just kind of making sure you you make time to spend with a family. I think a lot of uh, entrepreneurs where they talk about growing a business, you know, to the size, you know, uh, unicorn pluses, uh, something that comes up a lot is, you know, sacrifice. Do you feel like you had to sacrifice certain things in order to get uh, wise and your own career, right? Uh, up until a certain point. You make choices every day how you spend your time and what you want to achieve. So and like the sacrifice word sounds a bit too dramatic to me, to be honest, because also in the end, having a family is a choice you make. I think, you know, it's figuring out what works for you. I know that in addition to, to family and work, you know, I will, I do need some time for myself. You know, I need to be able to, to do sports and, you know, whether it's going skiing every now and then or like whatever it is, like I need that because otherwise I'm going to be a very grumpy, a very grumpy old man. So it's this question of knowing what works for you and then figuring out to organize everything around it. Okay. So talk to me about leaving. How do you know when it's the right time? You have to start with the fact that you're not going to die with your company. I think, you know, it's, it's in the end, it's a question of time and choices. So 
uh, TransferWise had become profitable, great team in place. We knew that it would be a public company someday. And, you know, as, as I mentioned, I would make it, you know, another seven years. So I was like, okay, I have this great choice of my co-founder taking over as CEO and I will, I will continue as chairman. And in a way, you know, I could even say it was a, it was a gradual, a gradual leaving, which I think has, you know, worked, worked really, really well for me. I didn't take like a deliberate time off, which, you know, oftentimes when I speak to others, I do recommend. I've been angel investing for a long time. So I was continuing to do more angel investing, some non-business projects. And then that kind of over time led me to what I'm focused now, which is building plural platform, which is a new type of venture investor in Europe. You know, we kind of, with a couple, couple other similar people, we realized that what the European ecosystem lacks is investors who have actually built companies before. For early stage companies, having an investor who's been on a journey, I believe is incredibly important. So in a sense, you know, building the venture firms that I, I wish I had when building, uh, when building TransferWise. Today we are five full-time company builders investing together. We'll grow this from five to 10 to 15, 20 over the coming years. And I think that's going to be a very powerful force that every founder would like to have on their, on their side. It is striking to me that only 8% of European VCs have experience working in a fast-growing tech company. How different is that to the US? I don't have numbers at hand, but it's probably rather 50-50 or you know, around there. We can think of uh, very well-known US venture firms like Andreessen Horowitz. They started as being exclusively ex-founders. I think they've, uh, they've changed a little bit now, but you know that does not exist in Europe. What are some of the most annoying things about VCs that you're aiming to change and do differently? When I was talking before about, it's it's very different with different companies because different founders have different weaknesses and different experiences. You know, at times it could be that it's a first time founder who hasn't actually built teams or hired people before. So you're going to be there hiring their first VP of sales and and working with them to help with that. Or at different times, it's a repeat founder for whom you will just act as a sparring partner on different things because generally they know what they're doing, but it's just good to have someone who is very well aligned with what they're, what they're doing and kind of just acts as a, as a helpful, helpful sounding board. So what are you like most excited about with Plural? And I suppose... What is the core mission there? Like, where does it go in 10 years? How have you internally set this up? In 10 years time, we'd love to be, we'd love to see a series, 100 plus companies that are iconic European tech companies that we have helped to grow. And, you know, if I look at Estonia as an Estonian ecosystem is, I think, around 10 unicorns and, you know, it has truly had GDP level impact in Estonia. So in the same way, the tech sector will have GDP level impact on Europe and we can help accelerate that if we do our job well. So that's why it's really exciting. And that's why it, that's why it makes sense to team up with other people to do this because together we can have more impact. And what do you think are going to be your biggest challenges then? It's the biggest challenge, you know, I, it is probably the question of finding enough 
enough entrepreneurs to join us because the European, like the number of people who've successfully built companies in Europe, it's not that huge yet. And we know that what we do is also not for everyone. So kind of balancing that, but same time, if we think about and the great companies in Europe now, like these founders at some point will move on to do other things and some of them will want to work on growing the next generation of companies. So I'm quite convinced that the pipeline of people is out there. And also I think the pipeline of ideas is uh, is bigger than ever. If we look at today, like uh, kind of the opportunities we have around climate, around AI, about health tech, you know, I think we're still at the early, early stages and it's, uh, I think it's going to be bloody exciting. What are you actually looking for? Like, And, and also how does your filtering process work? So the, the challenge is that the, um, Every one of us has their own interests, which, you know, doesn't make it easy to say this is for us or not. You know, what we aim to do is, is we aim to, to give people quick feedback of like, Hey, it's not exciting for us today. Don't take it personally. We have our hands full today. So, you know, but you know, when we, when we do find something exciting, we can, we can move, uh, we can move very, very rapidly. I think if I try to kind of, summarize across all of us and climate is a is an area which is very interesting web3 is something which is very interesting you know everything about kind of like what is the general purpose technologies that could be built is exciting how do we work around opportunity gap so different areas we're probably going to be less excited about the generic b2b SaaS company today because that's you know if all of us look back at our history of what's gotten us excited, it's probably less B2B SaaS are today. But, you know, it's just, it doesn't mean that we're not going to find someone who is incredibly excited about this in the next 12 months. And what kind of stage are you looking to invest in people? What kind of tickets? We're looking at early stage broadly, tickets between 1 and 10 million. So you know, I guess in the classic alphabet, it's to kind of like late seed, early Series A, but, you know, we've... Uh, We've ended up doing Series B or Pre-Seed. You know, we typically we like to lead rounds. You know, we're not gonna be we're not gonna be joining ground with a small ticket. You know, we either have conviction and we'll we'll do it and we'll we'll put in a decent check and do do lots of work, or we'll stay we'll stay out of it. And getting the fund together, talk to me a little bit about that. How much of that was like? How much does oh, if you were willing to share? How much does each founder of Plural put in? versus how much do LPs put in and what was it like to raise money from people again for something different? We raised 250 million, mostly from institutional investors, university endowments, pension funds, etc. There is a very noticeable portion of the money which is our own. I don't think we've shared the, the number Definitely very well aligned with, with what we're doing. Getting the fund together, it was hard work, but I think we were able to get it done in a pretty reasonable six months. And, you know, we were already investing as we were, we were raising it. I think it's not common to get, it's four of us who started it. And I think it's not that common to have four people a kind of similar entrepreneurial background come together and start a new fund. So I think we were 
we were able to find some people who really believed in what we're building, who really, who really believed in the European opportunity that we are presenting and who came on board quickly. What do you prefer being a founder or an investor? I think there's a time for everything in life. Like I do, I do think of life as a set of careers. I was an employee for 10 years. I was a founder for, I don't know how to count it, 10 years. Now I'm going to be an investor for 10 years. And maybe the next 10 years, I will be a politician. Or maybe I'll go back to being a founder or maybe I'll get a job. So I think it's like, they're all great. You know, my, what I don't like, I don't like doing things over again. So, you know, starting a new company with a similar profile as TransferWise, like even a different industry to me would be very much repeating myself because therefore I would find that hard to do. And, uh, you know, now while being an investor is very repetitive in some sense, uh, you know, there's still a sense of building, building something new. And, you know, at one point I will move on to something else and God knows what that is. But I do think it's great to have some variety and, you know, jobs and, you know, countries you live in and all of that. I think that makes, that makes life richer for one. Amazing. Okay. Last question. What is your advice for founders that are listening today who want to go on a big, long journey of building a category leading company like Wise? It's the speed of your iterations, which will determine if you're going to be successful or not. If it takes you nine months to bring out your initial product compared to another team, which will do it in three and have a second version in three and third version in three, like that speed of iterating will define whether you're going to win or not, in my mind. Tavit Hinrikus, one of Estonia's finest exports. I really like the idea of the different chapters in your life. What chapter are you in? And is it time for a new one? Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I hope you enjoyed it. I've been your host, Dan murray Serta. The episode was produced by Ruth Edwards with the help of Lower Street and brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolomon.